My topic this morning is the omnipresence of God. And my text from Matthew 28 and verse 20, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. These are the last words in the Gospel of Matthew, and Jesus speaks them on the mountain in Galilee. They are the conclusion of what is called the Great Commission, when the risen Jesus says to the 11 disciples, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Then comes the promise, one of the greatest in scripture. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. If Jesus is with us always, and Jesus is God, then God is omnipresent in both time and space. It is so simple and obvious a truth that I'm tempted to sit down now. But being a preacher, of course I resist that temptation, believing that there is more to say. For one thing, if it's so simple and so obvious, why have I never heard a sermon on the omnipresence of God? Have you? I doubt it. It's not a promise unique to Jesus, as our readings this morning demonstrate. Our Psalm, Psalm 139, is a veritable hymn to God's omnipresence. The psalmist, perhaps David himself, affirms that God knows everything about him. Verse 5, you hem me in, behind and before, and lay your hand upon me. To our ears it sounds like an embrace, or a blessing, or both. The psalmist knows he cannot escape God. Wherever he tries to flee, God is there, even in Sheol, the place of the dead. And God was intimately involved in his formation and development in his mother's womb. All his life is known to God, even before he lives it. And the psalm ends with a plea to the omnipresent God, search me and know my heart, try me and know my thoughts. Why? to see if there be any grievous way in me, that is, conduct that would displease God and lead me in the way everlasting. If you are tempted to think that God is only present to and involved with his saints and apostles, and not with poor sinners on the margin of history like you and me, I suggest you consider our first lesson from Genesis 16. It recounts the experience of Hagar, Sarai's Egyptian servant. She is used by Abraham, and I use that word advisedly, with Sarai's permission to beget a son when Abraham grew tired of waiting for the fulfillment of God's promise of an heir. 
Trouble begins almost as soon as Hagar's pregnancy, because Hagar prides herself on her fertility, whereas Sarah, much older, remains barren. Feeling her contempt, Sarai punishes Hagar, and she flees. An angel finds her and tells her to go back, that she will give birth to a son and name him Ishmael, which means God hears. Hagar calls the Lord the God of seeing, and in memory of this, the well at the spring to which she fled is called Bir Lahairoi, which means the well of the living one who sees me. So here is a non-Jew, a servant, a woman, involved in Abraham's faithless disobedience, who will produce a son who is not the fulfillment of God's promise and who will cause nothing but trouble, yet God hears her cry and sees her plight and sends his angel to minister to her. A few chapters later in Genesis chapter 21, after Isaac is born, Sarah succeeds in having Hagar and Ishmael banished. God again hears and sees her in her need and rescues both mother and child in the wilderness. Friends, if God was present to Hagar, he is present to you. Indeed, in our second reading, Romans chapter 8, Paul insists that there's nothing in all creation external to us that can separate us from God's love in Christ Jesus our Lord. I say external to us because, of course, our own sins, unacknowledged and unrepentant, can build a barrier between us and God. As Isaiah the prophet puts it, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. With Jesus, we may cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But when Jesus cried out, the sins of the world had cut him off from his father as he bore their awful consequences in dying on a Roman cross. But when we cry out, there is a remedy at hand, for God is blocked by our own pride and foolishness and longs to be reconciled to us through Jesus. So the omnipresence of God is a teaching for all the followers of Jesus, a promise we can all claim. I am with you always. The implications are stupendous. That God is fully present always and everywhere in his creation to every one of his creatures. As Jesus said, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the will of your Father. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Put it like this. You would not have more of God's constant attention and concern than you do if you were the only creature in all of the universe. It is mind-boggling 
which is why the psalmist says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain it. And how precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. And I would remind you that God never sleeps, never tires, is never off duty. No wonder Paul quotes with approval in his speech on Mars Hill in Athens, the Greek philosopher who writes of God as the one in whom we live and move and have our being. We live our lives in the mind of God, each of us, and his attention is always upon us. When the name of God is revealed to Moses through the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3, the name is what it can only be, I am, or I am that I am, or I will be what I will be. For Yahweh is the unique ground of all being, personal, powerful, self-determined, non-parel, at work in, but distinct from, his creation. But having described this wonderful truth, the omnipresence of God, I want to challenge you by suggesting that while we acknowledge this truth, we do not live in its reality. You and I prefer a God who is distant but available when we call, who will back us up when something goes wrong in our lives. Don't call us, we'll call you, is our attitude. And there are significant parts of our lives that we pretend that we can keep from divine scrutiny. These are our moments of anger or envy or lust when we behave as if we were the only moral arbiter in our world. We experience fear of and stubborn resistance to things which God might call us to or ask us to do if we let him get too close. So we evade. We run away. We change the subject. But it brings us no peace. Francis Thompson wrote a famous poem, The Hound of Heaven, about God's pursuit and our evasion. It begins, I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinthine ways of my own mind, and in the midst of tears I hid from him and under running laughter. Up vistaed hopes I sped and shot precipitated adown titanic glooms of chasm fears. From those strong feet that followed, followed after, but with unhurrying chase and unperturbed pace, Deliberate speed, majestic instancy they beat, and a voice beat, more instant than the feet. All things betray thee, who betrayest me. The poem goes on and concludes, this is God speaking. Alack, thou knowest not how little worthy of any love thou art. Whom wilt thou find to love ignoble thee? Save me, save only me. All which I took from thee, I did but take, 
not for thy harms, but just that thou might seek it in my arms. All which thy child's mistake fancies as lost, I have stored for thee at home. Rise, clasp my hand, and come. Halts by me that footfall? Is my gloom, after all, shade of his hand, outstretched caressingly? Ah, fondest, blindest, weakest, I am he whom thou seekest. Thou drovest love from thee, who drovest me. Despite our flight from God, we understand that in the new birth, the spiritual birth from above, Jesus brings us the gift of the Holy Spirit indwelling us. And this is the fulfillment of another great promise of Jesus, that if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. But how easily we domesticate the indwelling Holy Spirit, allowing him out in moments of worship or witness, but shutting him off when we feel the need to be and do on our own, sowing not to the spirit, but to the flesh. It is then that we must realize that all of our living, attitude, speech, and action is in the inevitable presence of the omnipresent God, to whom, in the words of our Collect for Purity, all hearts are open, all desires are known, and from whom no secrets are hid. So finally, how do we make the promise, I am with you always, and that is the promise of the omnipresence of God, an invitation to blessing rather than a guarantee of judgment? The answer, I think, is to be found in John chapter 15. To claim the promise, to receive it, to benefit from it, we must be abiding Christians, remaining constantly as branches connected to the true vine, which is Jesus. As God is present to us, so we must always present ourselves to him by this abiding not just occasionally, but continually. Read John chapter 15 today, and you will find that this abiding is not the privilege of saints and mystics, but a requirement for all disciples. It is the prerequisite for fruitfulness of a lasting sort. It is the prerequisite for effective prayer. But how do we abide in Jesus? Through obedience. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. And what are Jesus' commandments? In verse 12, he tells us, this is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Self-sacrificing, discerning, willing the best for the beloved, Agape love is what he speaks about here, not erotic love and not even friendship. So if God is omnipresent and Jesus is with us always as we try to fulfill his great commission to make disciples with the Holy Spirit indwelling us, 
then our only appropriate response must be to abide in Jesus by acting and thinking and speaking as he would. The phrase, WWJD, what would Jesus do, has become a cliché, but it's a cliché with a great deal of wisdom. And abiding begins with loving one another. If we can't express Jesus' love to one another in this fellowship, we certainly will not do it in the world beyond. Paul concludes his great meditation on agape love in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 with these words, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. But in the meantime, abide in Emmanuel, the omnipresent God, by obedient law. Amen.